podcast uh, about things that interest programmers called Code Monkey Talks. We're your co-hosts. I'm Brian Jackson, and I'm joined by my co-host, Brian Demers. Hey, guys. And today we also are joined by Jonathan Rudenberg, co-founder and CTO of Flynn. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. We're really excited to talk to you, uh, particularly about uh, Flynn uh, later in the show. Um, but what we do here is uh, we have a show that's broken up into three segments. Um, we first talk about some stuff uh, that is recent news uh, that might interest our listeners. Uh, after that, we'll do uh, a more in-depth interview with you, Jonathan. And then after that, we will leave our listeners with uh, something to do uh, until we re- return next week. So with that, let's get into the news. So for this next segment, we're going to talk about current events. Uh, we each are going to pick a news story uh, that we'll uh, read about, and then uh, we will discuss as a group. So, Brian, uh, why don't you go first uh, with your programming news? All right. So Google, I think it was, it was last week, released a, a big white paper about their security. Um, it's it's pretty detailed. Uh, it's it's a long read, but it's it's pretty interesting. So it covers f- their physical security, their... their um, how they how they manage I mean everything from malware to to data in transit between um, between data centers between applications uh, it, it's 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 a worth read it's it it is long but it's it's totally worth it so uh, I know Jonathan you you you've checked this out so do you have any thoughts you want to share yeah um, so this is specifically about Google Cloud uh, which runs uh, in the Google data centers on the same hardware setup so it pretty much covers just about everything that Google is doing um, and the really interesting thing here is that they actually uh, describe some like custom hardware that they have in the servers uh, for doing cryptographic verification so they don't really go into too much detail but it, it looks like they're doing this end-to-end secure boot so like as soon as the machine is powered on it's doing verification of the like their custom Linux operating system which in turn is doing verification of all the software that's running on it so they're they're working really hard to uh, eliminate uh, any problems that could be introduced by other hardware they don't control in the in the servers, basically. Yeah, it's it's pretty yeah. it's pretty great stuff. Yeah, this is really it's a very um, transparent read. Um, I, I really like that they're sharing this level of detail um, because you know it's it's the kind of thing that when you're trying to build out something like this and when you're trying to understand uh, how big players like. Google are doing this. Um, it's really great to see, you know, how their foundation of their security uh, is set up. Yeah, it also adds into the whole build versus buy thing. Like when you look at the complexity of this, right? <laughs> it's a, mm-hmm. it's an easy like oh, I probably don't have the manpower to to do any portion of this, let alone uh, you know whole data centers worth. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and for the the areas that you do have control over, like software and stuff, it it's really interesting to read through there and kind of make a checklist of like, oh, look, here are all some good best practices that I can use uh, when I'm developing my software on top of, say, Google Cloud. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, and so you know, I will have a link in the show notes for our reser- our, our listeners about that so that they can read it. Uh, Jonathan, uh, you had a an article that you wanted to discuss. 
Yeah, so um, Firefox and Chrome, uh, new versions just came out uh, in the past few days, and they are both marking uh, password forms on pages that don't have HTTPS as insecure. So like in the URL bar, it'll be marked as insecure if there is a password form that was served over plain text HTTP. Uh, and on Chrome, I believe they're also marking, uh, doing the same thing for credit card forms as well. This is awesome. Uh, I think it's sorely needed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I hadn't, I hadn't seen the uh, the note about the credit cards. That's that's really great too. Uh, I did check this morning as soon as I saw the announcement. I I, I updated Chrome, restarted, and uh, I had some localhost apps running that I was trying to log in, and those didn't show the warning. So I was like, oh, maybe I don't have the update. But sure enough, uh, as soon as I used my host name, um, you know the 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 error popped up in the address bar. So it was it was pretty noticeable. Um, it's probably not my mom probably wouldn't notice it or, or my dad um, but yeah. but I definitely noticed it it's uh I think it's definitely a step in the right direction yeah so the interesting thing to note here is what you can do is you can actually like if you're in a position and you're maintaining a website but you can't actually get the resources to deploy HTTPS right now you can take this to your boss and say hey look Chrome is marking our website as insecure would you please like give me the resources to deploy HTTPS yeah that's a great point yeah, that is, that is a really good point. I mean, I've worked in, in companies where, um, not to say they were lax about security, but you know, you really did have to make a justification um, for for adding something like this. Um, that, uh, but I think in this day and age, uh, the idea of securing your your password form, uh, you know, your login form, is like the bare minimum that uh, everybody should be doing. Yeah, at this point, everyone should be using HTTPS for their entire websites. There's basically no excuse other than that, oh, I don't have the resources because my boss wants me to do other stuff. Um, yep. But uh, it's it's free now. Like You can just use Let's Encrypt, um, and there's a lot of really good documentation and tooling out there to get everything figured out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so uh, the, it, the story that I wanted to talk about is uh, AWS uh, Code Deploy is introing uh, the blue-green deployments. So this, uh, if you're not familiar with uh, with this, uh, for our listeners, that um, AWS has uh, CodeDeploy, which is a pipeline um, uh, support in AWS for you to do deployments uh, of your, your project, your application. And blue-green deployments allows you to spin up a complete new instance of your application and then slowly trickle traffic over to it uh, until then finally you're ready to shut down the old version of your application. And uh, I, I think this is awesome that it's built into, uh, you know, into the pipeline now with code deploy. Yeah, that's super cool. I, I hadn't heard that. that. That hopefully makes things easier for people to get, get things done faster or at least get, gets, gets them able to do some, some testing, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really important to have like the automation around your deployment so that you can actually do that like really clean swap without having to worry about uh, like, oh, no, how do I roll back? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think that just empowering people, um, you know, there are lots of products that, that allow them to do this. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of people come to AWS uh, thinking that it's got everything and it does it, it really does have a lot and so people who i think come in and adopt code deploy right away um this is great for them to allow them to do their deployments with you know zero downtime all right so um 
that was really interesting news stories. Thanks, guys, for sharing. Uh, what we're going to do now is uh, we're going to talk to Jonathan more about uh, what he's doing at Flynn. So, um, Jonathan, uh, you know, you uh, and I had uh, talked a couple years ago now um, as Flynn was really in its infancy. And, um, you know, for our, our listeners, uh, Flynn is, uh, you know, a uh, platform as a service that uh, you can run your own and uh, I'm going to kind of throw it to Jonathan to tell us more about Flynn and then we'll get into kind of the interview. Yeah, sure. So uh, as you said, Flynn is a platform as a service. Um, it's completely open source uh, and you can deploy it on your own server. So you could deploy it in the cloud on any public or private cloud. You could deploy it on bare metal in your own data center. And it um, we really tried to replicate the Heroku model. It was a huge inspiration for us. So if you uh, are familiar with the Git push-based deployment flow, that's where we started. Uh, we also added Docker images, so you can just push Docker images to Flynn. And it's really designed to be this kind of, it's an open black box is the way we like to think about it. So it's very easy to install, very easy to get up and running with, but it provides everything you need to deploy your applications. And it also runs uh, databases as well. So we have uh, Postgres, MySQL, MongoDB built into the platform and managed by the platform in a highly available fashion so that you don't have to worry about how do I, you know, get the backing databases up and running for my apps as well. Yeah, uh, that was what, uh, you know, appealed to me. Uh, I was, you know, and still am working in a large, large corporation. Um, you know, a lot of the desires to keep stuff uh, internal, um, whether it's in a, a private cloud um, or it's in a, a like a VPC on, on AWS. So the idea of deploying out to Heroku um, really wasn't an option. Um, and so I was really looking for uh, something that was a Heroku uh, style of management because I like that personally. Uh, and that's what brought me to Flynn. Um, and it was something that uh, uh, I'm, I've been excited about. Um, it, it's something that we've kind of, uh, I've piloted and, and played with in my career, but haven't really had the opportunity to just full on adopt it. And, um, but, uh, you know, it, it's such a great model, uh, having the, the get, get push style of pushing things or, uh, basically using it as like a, a, a scheduler for, uh, the, the containers with, um, you know, with something like Docker. So, uh, yeah. And so, before we get even deeper into the interview, uh, I'd like to ask all our guests, um, how do you define DevOps? Um, because I think this is very relevant to kind of the space that, that Flynn uh, sits in. So um, tell me, you know, uh, what does DevOps you know mean to you? Yeah, so I think it's actually pretty subjective, and it really depends on the organization you're in. But for the most part, I think DevOps is really about just breaking down this relatively artificial divide between ops and developers. So uh, in the past, we've had these silos where you have ops and they are kind of this like consulting team that devs like basically like take a number and they have to like file a ticket to get something done. And it there ends up being a lot of friction between the two teams because fundamentally ops is just about like trying to make sure that things don't catch on fire and developers just want to move quickly. And so at Flynn, what we're trying to do is we're trying to change the role of DevOps a little bit so that instead of um, having to focus so much on the ops side, Flynn handles a lot of the ops side because you just get all this automation out of the box. And then um, the DevOps people can just focus on uh, 
things that that are actually more fun, like figuring out what the best practices of the organization should be and working with developers to make sure that applications are running well and things are working smoothly and kind of get ahead of this like very reactionary operation side of things. That's really cool. Uh, do you find that your um, your being that Flynn is being adopted kind of across the spectrum, or do you find that you have more startups or more corp- large corporations that are um, uh, adopting Flynn? Definitely across the spectrum. So we see everyone from like very small teams, like one person just doing some side projects, and they just want to like throw their apps at Flynn and not really worry about what's going on under the hood. And then there are startups that are, um, they maybe don't even have any DevOps or ops people, and they are just some developers that have this product that they really need to ship. And Flynn is solving a lot of what would traditionally have been done by an operator with a chef cookbooks or puppet. Mm. Um, And then at bigger organizations, there are typically like smaller teams within the organization that um, that have some autonomy and they can deploy Flynn and use it within their team. And in some cases, it'll actually go viral within the organization and expand out so that other teams are like, oh, what are you doing there? That looks interesting. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. Uh, it definitely seems like from a large corporation, you can have um, either that, that top down, somebody says we have to adopt this uh, from high up or it's grassroots uh, coming from from the bottom up and I, I definitely feel like this is a technology that's very likely to be a once you see it and try it um, you know people get hooked yeah absolutely cool um, do you find that um, the ops teams that are traditionally in um, you know in a, in a large corporation are receptive to something like this that it's great because it's i can speak from my experience it allows you to kind of separate the concerns of being a developer versus being an you know uh kind of the the keeping things running um mentality um you know how, how have you found that it's working with uh with ops teams so I, I think that in general, ops teams really like Flynn. Um, there is one area where I have seen some pushback, but it's pretty rare. And that is when your organization is already like basically got everything going on the ops side. Everything's already automated. You already have like some level of like really good deployment op- automation internally. So you've got those, those chef cookbooks are perfect, which yeah. I think a lot of people wish they were there. And I've only seen very few organizations where they're actually there. So when they're there, they're like, oh yeah, I think we just have this solved. So we don't really need this but that's pretty rare most people are really interested to see the like the the really low level work of like figuring out what to install on servers and like which apps to run and which vms go away Mm. yeah yeah um and do you find that that people are traditionally are they running it on a, a large like vm uh, cluster? Are they running it on physical, physical hardware? Like how, how are they? The most common deployment is onto public clouds. Uh, so the, clouds. the very popular public clouds like Amazon yeah. and Google. Um, and typically what you're going to do is you're going to run a bunch of um, high memory instances because that, that tends to be the, the limiting factor for most like standard web apps, like think a, like a Rails app or a Python or a Java web app. Um, you're mostly, it's like not so much about the CPU cycles. It's about having enough memory for your relatively heavy language VM. Uh, and so running, you know, three, five, 10, 20 hosts with lots of um, memory and uh, and then Flynn handles the scheduling across those. So you can just deploy your apps and, uh, you know, scale them up to the right number of instances across those servers and Flynn will do the rest. Tell me about the uh, the Flynn community. Like how, how does that work out? So so I, I 
personally seen, and I know, I know Brian, you have seen this as well. Uh, various uh, corporations, you know, have different takes on open source, right? So when they adopt something, especially when it's open source, they may or may not be contributing back. Um, have you guys seen any weird cases of that, or um, have you had a pretty good community? Yeah, I, I think our community is great. Um, so we have an IRC channel, uh, which uh, people just kind of drop in if they have any questions about Flynn, and that works pretty well. We have uh, community members who help out there, uh, and if they run into you know some wacky bug or they're like they've misconfigured something and need help with that, um, our the uh, developers of Flynn can help out in the IRC channel as well as on GitHub issues. Uh, we do get some code contributions. It's not like a super active uh, external contributor base, but there is like a fair amount of people submitting, you know, documentation fixes, small feature fixes, um, all sorts of things, uh, just as pull requests on GitHub. Cool, cool. That's great. So uh, tell me uh, more about, um, you know, are you sticking with uh, Flynn being something that is mirroring Heroku, um, you know, are you using things like the build packs that uh, Heroku has um, published in, in the open source? Yeah, we're absolutely using the Heroku build packs right now. So our goal is to have uh, compatibility with Heroku. So if you have an app that's running on Heroku, you should be able just to move that over to Flynn without making any changes to it. Um, and then what we're doing is we're adding more features on top of that. So adding more built-in databases. So it's not just Postgres. We also have MySQL um, and MongoDB, uh, as well as other features. Uh, so we're working uh, a lot on security right now. Um, and that stuff hasn't landed yet, but uh, it will um, be really interesting to see this like pervasive security layer throughout Flynn so that uh, you're actually getting even more guarantees than you would get out of another platform. Uh, for example, like being able to do two-factor auth for a deploy is something that we're adding to Flynn. So um, the, the Heroku compatibility, so is that everything from like the, the proc files and the, the app JSONs and everything like that as well? Uh, currently, we don't support the app JSON. Uh, that was added kind of after we like locked down the Heroku feature set that we were going to support. Um, and we're, it's very Heroku specific. So it has things like the exact like product names of add-ons in it and things like that. But right. absolutely proc files, the like runtime environment is the same where you, we have the like same cedar stack with the same packages, the same set of build packs and so on. Cool. That's great. Uh, so Brian, can you fill me in on what the app JSON is? Uh, because I, I guess I have not seen. Is that a you know relatively new feature of? Yeah, Heroku? so I, I've used it in the context of Heroku buttons. So, uh, so you create a sample app, you create a Heroku button, you know, in the in your your README markdown, um, and when you click on the button, the the app gets you know deployed more or less, yeah. um, you know, one click or what all. Um, but I, I forget the Heroku page. Um, but there's a, a stats page where you can see how many times your button's been clicked, and and there's um, some some metadata along with what that app is doing, it, as well as uh, what Jonathan mentioned about uh, add-on. So so I know Stormpath we have a Heroku add-on, um, so it's it's automatically tied in, and uh, so this this I, I don't know what else it can do, but there's I know at least those things. Mm, yeah, okay. the general yeah. idea is that it is uh, it is meant to be like kind of a description of what is necessary to deploy the application. So it'll have a list of environment variables, the like the add-ons, whether it needs a Postgres database, that kind of stuff. Um, we're really interested in expanding that out. So we've got this concept of a Flynn file uh, that we're working on right now on GitHub, um, and it will 
basically be a similar thing except specific to Flynn uh, that describes like how do I deploy an app. So if I want to like get, for instance, WordPress up and running on Flynn, it's actually kind of tricky right now because it you need to like reach into some PHP files and like change some configuration variables to use environment variables. And there's all sorts of like wacky setup. And so trying to figure out how to encapsulate that into a single file along with maybe dependencies. So maybe there's like an external database appliance that you want to pull into Flynn and get up and running with some wacky database. Maybe it's an internal database that you're running that's specific to your organization, or right. it's just one that's more obscure that's not built into Flynn. And so the idea is that we would be able to do that within a Flynn file um, and kind of uh, have that description. But the the app JSON for Heroku is basically the same idea, but specific to Heroku. Got yeah, it. that's really cool. That's uh, uh, it's definitely you know I know Brian and I uh, outside of this have talked a lot about the whole descriptor based everything, right? So yeah, so this definitely fits fits well into that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, thinking about adding new resources, is that something that uh, is extensible or is that something that you are kind of letting your core team, uh, you know, deal with right now? So we're in the, we're in on this like roadmap towards being able to add other databases to Flynn uh, that are not built in. It is technically possible, but you have to really kind of reach into the guts of Flynn and like manipulate low level JSON files and stuff. Um, and use different APIs that are not particularly well documented. So uh, our, the first step towards that right now, which is going to be landing in the next release cycle, is uh, something that we're calling tunables, which is basically a way to uh, change the configuration parameters for the databases that are running within Flynn. And that is a relatively generic thing that can be extended to other databases as well. Uh, and then we've got a few more features lined up that will, at the end of it, we'll be able to basically say, hey, here is a GitHub repo that describes, say, Elasticsearch. I would like that to be running on Flynn in a highly available configuration. And then Flynn would get all of the necessary prerequisites and set up all of the, uh, like, the uh, internal, like, database records to say, like, here's how you provision a Elasticsearch uh, database and so on. I see. And so Flynn, uh, pardon me that I don't know this off the top of my head, Flynn, is it based on any of the um like the schedulers that are out there like you know uh, what i mean is is it, are you based on kubernetes or or mesos at this point or have you kind of built your own um uh ground layers on on flynn at this yeah point? so we actually ended up building a lot from scratch and the reason for that is we started in 2013 and this was like docker was still in alpha um and there was basically no tooling that existed so kubernetes didn't exist uh and there was there was nothing that was useful to us. So we, we just had to start from scratch. So we did end up building our own scheduler. Uh, we have our own container manager at this point. We have our own container image system. And it's all pretty like invisible to the user. So you have a high-level command line interface and a web UI to manage your applications and databases and so on. Uh, and then under the hood, it's all relatively custom components. We're not We're not like actually doing like NIH in areas where it doesn't make sense. So, for instance, mm. uh, we use the Raft consensus algorithm in Flynn, but we didn't write that library ourselves. We're pulling in an external library that is a good Raft library to use within our service discovery system. I see. Yeah, that and, makes sense. And we do the same thing for containers too. So, we're using uh, the libcontainer, also known as RunC library, that Docker uses to run containers. Cool. Uh, yeah, the reason I asked is I, I've seen that, um, you know, uh, Deus, which is is uh, another product that's in this space, has gone very heavy with uh, its adoption of Kubernetes uh, as its kind of 
foundational layer. So, um, uh, you know, for somebody who is looking for something that isn't tied to, um, you know, another product, uh, I think that's, that's a definite asset of Flynn. Yeah, I think Flynn is still the easiest thing to install out of the options that are available to you. Um, like I, there are a lot of reasons why you might want to look at Kubernetes, but in general, it is um, it is going to be something that is lower level, and you're going to have way more control, which also means way more work. Yeah, right. That's that's been the thing that has kind of frightened me from the, you know, I, I'm a team of one, and I want to show uh, everybody what kind of a bleeding edge setup would be um, and trying to set up Kubernetes or Mesos, you know, feels a lot heavier weight than, than trying to, um, you know, set up something like Flynn. Yeah. Our, our number one goal is just to make Flynn like really easy to install and use. So you don't have to actually like understand what's going on if you don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. So one of the first things I noticed about Flynn, uh, again, this was a few years ago and I noticed it's still there, um, was the, uh, the prime directive at the bottom. So is, is that, is there a story behind this or is, uh, uh, yeah, the name of the company behind Flynn, uh, is prime directive Inc. And, uh, me and my co-founder Daniel are just really big Star Trek fans. <laughs> and so when it came time to name the company, we couldn't name it Flynn Inc. for reasons because, you know, there are other companies named Flynn Inc. Uh, so we came up with this, and no one else had named their company Prime Directive Inc. in Delaware yet. That's wild. That's that's half surprising and half not surprising, I guess. But it's a great name. <laughs> Thanks. That is, that is awesome. Um, another thing that you have listed, like on your your site, is the Tent Protocol. Um, I, I would love to kind of chat a little bit about that. Um, you know, as far as uh, what state it's in, and uh, is there uh, adoption around it? And, and I guess first explain to our listeners what is it yeah sure so tent started as uh this idea of uh this was back when twitter was basically changing the way they did api access so they were shutting down a lot of apps that were using twitter because they wanted to uh change the how people were using Twitter and move people towards the official apps. And so there was these massive shutdowns and people were relatively unhappy. And we were thinking, well, what if we made something that was decentralized Twitter? And we were thinking about it more and we thought, well, you could also do decentralized Facebook on top of this or even decentralized Dropbox. And what it looks like is it's kind of like the way email works. So you have a server that is responsible for doing the storage of your data as well as the transmission of your data to other servers. And then you have client apps that speak a standard protocol called Tent. Uh, and those client apps could be written by different developers and using the same uh, types of data. And that data is just JSON. So it ends up looking like this relatively straightforward API for just like shunting around JSON blobs with a schema uh, between servers. And uh, we built that out uh, in 2012 and 2013. Mm. Uh, we built a bunch of apps on top of it. Uh, and it still it still exists. Uh, it's kind of on the back burner at this point because we pivoted to uh, Flynn after yeah. spending a lot of time just trying to get apps into production for Tent. And we were like, this is a lot of work. Someone needs to solve this problem. Uh, and so we shifted gears and we've been working on Flynn uh, since 2013. I think at some point we may revisit the ideas behind Tent, but there's currently like no ongoing development. Yeah, but I love that story of kind of how you 
started to build, a, you know, a, a company and a set of apps, and you realized, wait, I think we need to solve, you know, how you deploy apps. Yeah, so we were building like these small, like service-oriented apps. Microservices didn't exist as a term, and so there would be, you know, three or four components for a particular thing, and it would take me like a few days to just write the. I don't even remember. I think it was Ansible scripts to deploy that. Uh, and that was the same amount of time that it had taken to write the components. And I thought that was really silly. Yeah. Yes, uh, I can relate. Uh, I am adopting Ansible over the past couple of months. Uh, you know, I've, I've used Chef, I've used Puppet. Um, and all of those are a lot of work uh, to, to get right. And so um, I, I definitely like the idea uh, that you can just create your app do git push, uh, you know, or create a Docker file and then push it up into a, a, a infrastructure that's going to manage it for you. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's really nothing like just being, just being able to say, Hey, just deploy this app and it's up and running and you can, you know, send HTTPS requests to it, uh, within a few seconds. It's pretty great. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I've, I've been in the same boat, um, you know, chef puppet ansible, um, and, and at the end of the day, right, like that's not the your core business. That's what you're trying to uh, to just use to run your application, you know. So it's it's just extra stuff. Not that it's bad. I mean, obviously these things are great and they're there for a reason, right? But they're they're ancillary to your actual application. Yeah, which I think for smaller teams uh, is that's really where it shines because for a smaller team. Um, you just don't have the manpower, um, you know, to invest into that infrastructure in the same way, um, you know, as, as you're early on. So I think that's, that's again, where this really shines. Um, if you're, if you're in a position where you're, you're, you don't want to be bound to say specifically to, uh, Heroku or, uh, one of the other platforms, you know, Beanstalk or something like that, uh, and you want to have more control over that, uh, that's where I think, Flynn really uh, really shines. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jonathan, and that's not why people are using it, but I, I could see that that's exactly why they would uh, want to. Yeah, I think that's a big component to it. Um, another thing that I think is a side effect of using Flynn is it really helps mitigate the infrastructure lock-in that you can get on a cloud like Amazon, for instance. So instead of being tied into the proprietary tools that are not portable on Amazon, you can have Flynn be this abstraction layer that you're deploying to and targeting. And so later, if you get a better deal from Google Cloud, you can actually just forklift everything over and it's the exact same environment. It's super easy to move between clouds. That is an incredible selling point that I... I almost want to say is not, you should have that in big, bold letters, like on the first page, <laughs> right? Um, I think that that is something that I, I hear people talk about, and it's almost like a pipe dream in some sense. But when, uh, you know, you present it like this, and you have, uh, you know, uh, a a system like this with, with Flynn, where you can just pick it up and move it to one of these other clouds, um, that's that's a big promise fulfilled for a lot of people who uh, think that it's a pipe dream. Yeah, can, can you span clouds right now? Uh, right now, you would deploy like multiple Flynn clusters into each uh, region that you wanted to deploy, uh, and then you could you know use uh, DNS to load balance across them. There is not a lot of tooling for doing like multi-cloud or hybrid cloud around Flynn right now. It's something that we're really interested in in the future, uh, but uh, we're focused on like the immediate like how do we make this really good on a single 
region before expanding out. Sure, sure, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, exactly. And and the way you phrased that, I mean, if you're just treating, you know, whether it's Google Cloud or Rackspace or AWS as a region, the same way that AWS has regions, um, then it doesn't become that hard of a mental leap, at least, you know, the way that you're, you know, you're thinking about it. Uh, obviously, I haven't gone through the logistics of what that means for deploying to each one, but it, I'm sure it just ends up being get push it to, you know, n number of places instead of uh, just one. Yeah, and if you're really interested in doing that, there are shortcuts. So Flynn is entirely API-driven, so you could pull the compiled artifact out of the API of the Flynn cluster that did the the first build and push that into the second cluster and deploy that um, pretty invisibly if you wanted to build a bunch of tooling around that. So far, I, no one has gotten super sophisticated with their APIs. I think that's probably a good thing. It lets us change them. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah. I think over time, people will become more and more integrated into the Flynn APIs. Yeah, you you mentioned that compiled um, artifact. Is that slug? Is it a, um, a Docker image or is it something else? Uh, it is a Flynn image, so it's actually a SquashFS image. We spent a lot of time thinking about the best way to do container images, and we came up with a bunch of optimizations. And so we ended up not using an off-the-shelf image format. So you can push a Docker image to Flynn, and then what happens is it gets converted into a Flynn image internally. Cool. Uh, and the the output of building a uh, something with a Heroku build pack is the same uh, type of Flynn image. Cool. Yeah. So is it is it literally just um... Like in the case of a Docker image with multiple layers, you just like flatten that out and then package you back up. Yeah, I think the there it's an implementation detail that um, I can't remember exactly. I think it's either just converting each of the layers into a squash image, squash FS image, or it's like flattening it down and then making one. I forget which it is. Sure, uh, it, yeah, it's cool though. Yeah, and then there's a there's also like this descriptor that goes with it that describes like what the dependencies are and how to run the stuff that's inside the image and so on. And then uh, on the actual host, what happens is that squashfs image is then loaded into uh, the ZFS pool that is running on the host that we store all of the Flint related data in. And uh, and then we we'll, we can basically use the um, overlayfs to uh, layer things depending on what's necessary. So a temporary disk gets layered on top and so on. And all of that is within the ZFS pool, both as ZFS volumes and as um, uh, these things called, uh, uh, they're basically a block device within a ZFS pool. It's pretty interesting stuff. Wow. Very cool. Um, so Jonathan, I really want to thank you for joining us today. Um, I, I love talking about this stuff, uh, and, you know, and I'm really excited about Flynn as a product. Um, so where can our listeners find uh, more about you and what you're working on? Yeah, so uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my username on Twitter is Titanus, T-I-T-A-N-O-U-S, and you can check out Flynn at Flynn.io, F-L-Y-N-N.io. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. And I can be found on Twitter at Brian Demers, all one word. Uh, I blog over at stormpath.com, and I will be at the Boston Java Meetup Group February 7th talking about Apache Shiro, if anyone in the area wants to stop by. Great. And uh, I can be found on Twitter at Jackson, J-A-X-Z-I-N. But before we go, let's leave our listeners with something to do. So this is where each week we'll leave you, the listener, with something to watch, read, play, or try out some other way. Uh, Brian, what did you want to leave our listeners with? All right, so uh, my thing for this week is 12factor.net. Um, I know a lot of people have already seen this, but if you haven't, definitely go check it out. Um, it's basically just a way of, of thinking about your applications, any type of application. Um, 
to make them portable. And this this fits in with Heroku or Flynn or these other types of environments. So yes, definitely check it out. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's you know it's kind of like the precursor uh, of understanding to understand why you want to um, scale your applications in the way that a lot of these newer platforms and these platforms of the services including Flynn um, want you to so um, it, these 12 factors are very important so I definitely encourage people checking that out as well um, and uh, so Jonathan uh, what did you want to leave with uh, our listeners with so I've been reading this book called Eccentric Orbits, and it's the story of how the Iridium satellite network was launched. Uh, it's super interesting. Basically, the Iridium satellite network, if you're not aware of it, is 77 satellites in low Earth orbit, and they cover the entire globe. So you can make a satellite phone call from literally anywhere on the globe using Iridium. It was launched in the early 90s uh, using a bunch of tech that was basically laundered out of the Star Wars missile defense program and uh, by Motorola. And they, um, they almost deorbited the whole network in the early 2000s because Motorola didn't want to pay for it anymore and they couldn't figure out how to make money off of it. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Um, so my experience with uh, the Iridium network um, is uh, I love to go and watch Iridium flares. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but because of the precision of the way that they rotate, um, they you can actually get sunlight to glint off of them and get these very bright flares. Um, and there's websites. Uh, I will add a, in the show notes um, a link to a website um, that allows you to go and, and see if there's uh, what, when the next Iridium flare is in, in your area. Uh, and sometimes they're really brilliant, like... Um, brighter than Venus, um, you know, uh, you know, so it's, that's also really fun. So the book sounds awesome. I, I definitely think I, I want to pick that up. Um, so mine, uh, my something to do this week is uh, selfishly uh, something that I absolutely love on a personal level, which is uh, Bioshock. Uh, it was a video game that came out a couple years ago. They remastered it and released a, a remaster of it, and I just started replaying it. And um, it cemented like why uh, it has stuck with me. Um, it is it is such a great video game. I love the story and the the environment that uh, it sets up. And so um, I encourage uh, our listeners if you have been interested in Bioshock that uh, um, you know you should check it out. And if you haven't, if you don't even know what I'm talking about, um, I encourage you to go read a little bit. Uh, there are probably massive spoilers. Um, it's a really great story that you don't want to get spoiled on, but. Uh, um, I would definitely, you know, at least go check out some screenshots and stuff. So I, I, I'm gonna, gonna be honest. I've never played Bioshock. Yeah. But I know that you're a huge fan. <laughs> um, Did you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> have, um, I, have I been a little uh, obvious about it? Yes. So, so Brian made this. Um, I don't know. It's it's a prop from the game, but it's it's wild looking, right? Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, this is a couple of years ago. It was it was a Halloween project for me. Uh, I spent like you know August and September one year building one of the characters. So for those who are familiar, those who aren't familiar, uh, there's a character called a Big Daddy. Uh, in in it's this big kind of um, steampunkish uh, uh, giant um, creature that's um, you know very very uh, like an old diving bell is the way that it looks and. Um, I was I started creating a, a life size one for me. It was totally over ambitious. It's not like I'm a prop designer or, or maker, um, but I ended up creating uh, a smaller one for my son uh, that uh, that 
so I have like a little a little big daddy that um, that my at the time I think he was three uh, was able to to dress in for Halloween and he totally humored me and I then dressed up my daughter as uh, another character from the game called a little sister and um, yeah and then on top of that there's another character the little sister has a prop that's called a um, there's this atom gun. Uh, there's a there's like a long needle type gun uh, that uh, that I also built that lights up, um, and that's something that I have on my desk uh, at work that I'm a big fan of. So yes, uh, and I have I documented all of that. Uh, thank you, Brian, for the the self indulgent plug here. Um, <laughs> there's a Tumblr that I created, uh, uh, Operation Rapture uh, uh, Tumblr. Um, I'll. I guess I will put a link in the show notes. I wasn't planning on that, but yeah, uh, absolutely, absolutely. And the Jackson family as a whole are crazy into Halloween. Um, yes. So, so I, I'm I'm amazed every year what you guys do. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, my my wife is a huge Halloween uh, fan, and so we usually always dress up as a family. Uh, and thankfully, my kids, uh, my daughter's ten now, but she uh, she's definitely getting to the age of uh, not thinking it's as fun and cool as it used to be. <laughs> And so this year was a bit of a struggle, but um, but she was a good sport, and we ended up dressing as uh, the characters of Up, and she wanted to be a bird, so she was Kevin, the, the bird from Up, and uh, I was Carl Fredrickson, and my son was uh, Russell, and uh, and then my wife was dressed as um, uh, the uh, the house with the balloons, actually. Um, so. <laughs> so that wraps up our fourth episode. Please check out our website at codemonkey.fm or email us at feedback at codemonkey.fm. And check out our, our Slack or subreddit, and all those links can be found on the website. Thanks, Brian. And if you like this episode, do us a favor and please review us uh, on your favorite podcaster, uh, podcast finder, excuse me, of choice, be it uh, iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, uh, or another one. Um, that would really help us out get, and get us heard by more people. So uh, thanks again to Jonathan for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next week.